Would you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5? And if you don't mind, um, it's a long chapter. You can read the whole thing. So if you're comfortable, please stand. If not, stay where you're seated. But if you love God and want to go to heaven... <laughs> By the way, I just want to let you know, my wife and I bought our tickets for the ball game. And um, my wife said, but I don't want to watch a ball game. I said, honey, it's dollar hot dog night. So anyway... <laughs> What more do I need to say, being the food connoisseur that I am? Anyway, the text begins, chapter 5 of Nehemiah, verse 1 says, Now, speaking as the building project is going forward, the men and their wives, that's referring to the common people, raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers, specifically the officials, the nobles, the wealthy, and the powerful, maybe a better way to put it. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, and although we are, on the, same, we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I, I told them, you're exacting usury, that is interest, from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles, that is, sold for uh, debt slavery, and now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us again. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say, and so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also leading and lending, excuse me, the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to the, them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, which would be about 12% interest, the money, grain, and new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also took, shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep his promise. So, we may, so may such a man be shaken out and emptied. And at this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And moreover, the 20th year, in the 20th, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah, until this 32nd year, that's 12 years later, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. 
Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, and my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I have done for these people. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we look at this chapter and all that it says that your Holy Spirit would use it in our own hearts and minds to deepen our understanding of your ways, to deepen our willingness to commit ourselves to following the paths that you set before us. Lord, we just pray for an awareness that only your Holy Spirit can give us. We ask this of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most misunderstood and often, therefore, misapplied sayings of Jesus is found in Matthew 14 and verses 3 through 9, where essentially the short version is that Jesus says to his disciples, the poor you will always have with you. Sadly, some have taken this statement as permission to ignore the poor and to ignore poverty in our world, as if God has basically said, well, that's just some people's fate, or if you're not into Calvinism, it's a result of their own choices, which is sometimes true, but not nearly as often as we think. But in saying it, what they also tend to do is skip over the second part of that statement where Jesus added, and you can help them anytime you want. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. When we look at the Gospels, we see that he fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he comforted the brokenhearted, he set captives free, he delivered people from all kinds of oppressions. And then he, in the same way, warned us by saying in Matthew 25 and verse 41, he says that I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And he says, then they'll turn to him and ask him, Lord, when did we see all of these things? And he said, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. There's not enough time for me to cover every passage that has to speak with about the social responsibility that we have as Christians. Something is called social justice today. I'm not sure it's the best term because I'm not sure that we really can use justice and humanity in the same breath. But the simple fact is that when we look at the first church, the early church, one of the very first things that began to express itself was that kind of practical concern, especially for one another. In chapter 2, verse 45, it says, they gave to anyone as he had need. And later on in chapter 4, in verses 32 through 35, he adds, they shared everything they had. There was no needy person among them. It's the kind of thing that John says is, how can you say you love your brother and see him in need and just simply say to him, be warmed, be filled, and then go away, not really becoming actively involved in making a difference in their life. Something I think we need to clarify. There is absolutely no evidence that God views poverty and want 
as either an inevitability or a desirability or something that makes you somehow spiritually superior because you're in dire circumstances in your life. So why is there such disparity economically and socially in our world? Why is it all, all over the place? Well, the short answer is simply sin. I mean, if we go to the Garden of Eden before sin, we see Adam and Eve, and what do we see? We see perfect, complete, total, absolute equality. We don't see any kind of differentiation. You know, Adam didn't walk up with a, a Gucci shoes on and say, hey, Eve, look at those bare feet. He didn't, there was no comparison going on. There was a simple equality there. But what happened after sin entered in was not only a separation from God and relational separation between people, but there grew also this kind of twisted competitiveness that somehow we can raise individual stature by having more of something. And ironically, one of the first mores that they began to pursue was more than one wife. It took them a long time to figure out that was a mistake. <laughs> but you see, we often foolishly make the decision that uh, can lead to all sorts of dire consequences. And one of the things that Solomon said in Proverbs 13, 18, he says, he who ignores discipline comes to poverty and shame. So I don't disagree with people saying a lot of times people end up in, in impoverishment and other socially downward mobile situations because they make a series of really bad choices. When Jeff was here talking about his life before he met Christ, he would be the first to admit, I was on the path of making a string of really, really bad choices that was making my life worse, pushing me further from God and people, and probably ultimately would have led to my destruction. So I'm not saying that people don't make choices. That's why Paul says, if a man is unwilling to work, he shouldn't be allowed to eat because that's part of our social responsibility is to do our part. But far too often the situations that people find themselves in are not something that they created all on their own. There is this thing called injustice in the world. There is oppression. There is corruption. There is violence. In fact, the UN spent a long time studying what are the root causes of poverty in the world. Because aside from the fact that humanity has actually invested trillions of dollars trying to raise the standard of living of people around the world, we still know that there are about 2 million people who go to bed every night in abject poverty. They, their average income is $2 a day, which you know, most of us understand, unless you're a four-year-old, doesn't buy a lot. And so as a result, they're living in a circumstance that's going to lead them to, to, to lower and lower situations. You take, for example, North Korea, because that's a safe one I can point out without making people uncomfortable. But the North Koreans are poor and they're oppressed by a brutal, greedy, violent dictatorship that steals and starves its own people. And if it was limited to that one nation, we would say, let's make that a focal point of prayer. But the fact of the matter is, it happens across the world on almost every continent. And the irony is that it even happens here in America. 
That when we look at the situation oftentimes in the inner cities of our own cities, things like gangs and the violence that comes from that and the economic oppression that is brought onto a community by peoples that rob and steal from one another. When we talk about corrupt political officials, which seems like they're growing and increasing in number, those who use the power of office to enrich themselves, or even officials who sometimes in their capacities steal from their own communities things that are necessarily needed. And what the experts have found is that violence is actually the major cause of poverty in the world. One story I heard of a woman who was doing okay, she said, in Africa. We were doing okay. They had a home, they had a little shop, they were making a living and life was okay. And then her husband died and he says everything was okay until Brutus showed up. And who was Brutus? Brutus was her neighbor who came, beat her up, threw her out of her house, drove her kids away, took her home away from her, took away her stall and made it his own and left them on the street impoverished. And we would sit back and say, well, there should be laws restricting that. And that's the problem. There are laws, but they're not enforced. And the reality is that happens in our own culture. We know it for a fact. We hear about it from time to time. And we have one of the few cultures, I think, in the world that is making a reasonable effort to root out corruption, but it happens to people all the time. And sometimes it's a very governmental system's that are in place that bring that hardship and the impoverishment. That's why Solomon, making an observation on this very fact in his own day, said in Proverbs 13, 23, he says, a poor man's field may produce abundant food, but injustice sweeps it away. This is certainly what we read about in the story of Nehemiah and Jerusalem in his time. Literally, the rich in the city used their positions and their power to take advantage of their countrymen who were going through a time of particular hardships. We're told what those hardships were. There were food shortages because of famine. Now, famine often came because of drought, because they subsisted upon the rainfall. There was no irrigation system, no rain, and people lost their livelihood. They lost their crops. So there were food shortages. There were also labor shortages because most of the men were occupied in building the wall. They couldn't afford to both farm and build at the same time. But what there was no shortage of was taxation. There was the Persian tax that was placed upon them, and then there was the governor's tax on top of it. And when it speaks about the officials, these were the men who were taxing their own brethren in order to maintain a lifestyle, not simply just to survive, but it was their means of maintaining a lifestyle that they felt was incumbent upon their position. In response to this, the people were doing the only thing they could do. They were mortgaging everything they had, They were borrowing money at predatory rates that 12% interest ensured that they would never be able to get out of debt. And they even got to the point where they were selling their own children into bond slavery, debt slavery. 
See, there's two kinds of slavery. There's called chattel slavery, where we had in America, in our system, we had chattel slavery. People were slaves, they were properties, and there was no out. They were a slave all their life. Their children's children's children were going to be slaves. That's not the kind of slavery was going on here. This was death slavery, but it was structured in a way that you could never get free from it. So that even though you were working off your debt, the debt was growing at a faster rate. It's kind of like when you get the credit card and it says minimum payment, and you think they're so kind, I borrowed $3,000 and they only want $25 a month. They do that because they know you'll be paying them $25 a month for the rest of your life and your children's life and your children's children's life. In other words, the interest rate causes the debt to grow faster than the payment that covers it, and you go deeper and deeper in debt. That's the kind of dynamic these people are facing. So it's not real difficult to see why Nehemiah became so, as he said, very angry. If we translate it, we might add a few descriptive adjectives. He was hot. He was furious. He was incensed. He was outraged. He was livid. He's literally coming out of his skin as he hears about what's going on. But because he was a man who was self-controlled, he tells us that the first thing he did is he pondered in them in my mind. I, I thought about them. The, the word ponder there means to think very carefully before reaching a conclusion and making a decision. And then after he had done that, he formulates a plan to respond. And his response was simply this. He accused the nobles and officials. In other words, he, he formally indicted them. He called them in and he confronted them with the indictment of their transgression. He says, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? In short, he says, it's morally wrong, it's biblically wrong, it's spiritually wrong, and the worst thing is, it's making our God look bad in the eyes of the nation around us. To this point, we know, as we've studied, that Israel has overcome all kinds of pressures and problems brought on them by their enemies. But this now is a self-inflicted wound with the potential of being more destructive than anything that their enemies, particularly Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, had been able to think up on their own. Because what was happening was so undermining the morale and the confidence of the community that the community was losing its unity. People were going to stop working and it was going to rip them apart because people were having their literal hearts and lives ripped out of them by the hardships they were facing. And the worst thing was, as they were going through this difficulty, the people who had the power to make a difference weren't making a difference. What I find more interesting than Nehemiah's reaction to the information is the response to his confrontation by the nobles and officials when he rebukes them. This was their response. It says, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Further on, it says, we will give it back. We will not demand anything more from them. In other words, Nehemiah said, give them their properties back. Give them their monies back. Give them everything that they return everything to them, including their children, and apologize for what you have done and ask their forgiveness. 
There's no arguing, there's no rationalizing, there's no justifying, just an immediate admission of guilt and a promise to set things right. Now, why was that response so quick? And I think part of the answer is because they knew what the Bible said. For example, in Exodus 22:25, it reads, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, charge him no interest. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. But I love the way that it's put in Leviticus chapter 25, where he really covers a bigger spectrum. He says this, Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your gods so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. In fact, it's interesting how it was built into the Mosaic law because if a man had to sell himself or a family member into debt slavery, they could only be kept in that condition for seven years and after seven years, there was the opportunity to buy them out, pay off the rest of their debt and return it. Every 50th year, everything that had been sold had to be returned. You bought a house because somebody was in hardship and they need the money. When you, after your family's lived there 50 years, you have to give them their house back for free. Everything returns. And that's why they became very clever. They started figuring out what they were willing to pay for certain things based upon how many years it was to the year of Jubilee or the 50th year. But God had a very interesting rationale behind it. He said he never wanted his people to be disenfranchised from the land. That the greater objective was that they could continue to live in the land that he had given to them. Whether it be by natural causes that they had no control over or even by foolish decisions that they had made themselves. In fact, one of the great stories of the Bible, the, God, the book of Ruth, is about a family that left their inheritance and came back later on and really are retaking back the properties that had once been theirs, but they had sold because of famine and hardship. And it's an interesting system. It's, it's not how our economy works. It's not pure capitalism, nor is it socialism. But it's this idea that every so often the playing fields need to be leveled because they become unlevel. So that when you have, for example, an economic system where the president or the CEO of a corporation makes a thousand times more than the people that are working for him, then we realize this, there's an inequity here. There's an injustice here. And I don't know that people set out to do that. I don't know it's intentional. And I know that I'll probably get email, emails accusing me of being a socialist. <laughs> but there's something broken in a system like that. And you see, when they're confronted with this issue, they clearly knew that what they were doing was wrong and, they, so, and I guess that raises a question in my mind. If you really know in your mind that what you're doing isn't right, why did they keep on doing it? Well, we might well ask ourselves that question, shouldn't we? Why do we continue to do things that we know are wrong? And I, I've come up with two really, really insightful revelations on that one. The first reason that you and I do things that we know are wrong is because we're sinners, uh, in fact, when Paul says to the Romans, my sin nature deceives me, 
I think that's something we, we like to say, well, yeah, before I was a Christian, my sin nature deceived me, but now I've got a spot on, man. I've got that thing in control. Good luck with that. If you're saying that, you really are being deceived by your sin nature because there is this thing inside of us, isn't there not? Jeremiah put it so well in Jeremiah 17, 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And before Christ, he said, who can cure it? Now we can say, well, Jesus can, can cure the deceptiveness of my heart. But how easily, even as a Christian, we can convince ourselves that what God calls evil, that somehow we're able to call good. That is if what we're talking about is something that furthers my desires, my ambitions. It's an amazing thing to me. That somehow we can rationalize stuff that in our hearts we're saying, well, I know I shouldn't do that, but you know, it's um, really important to me. One of the things that uh, I think is important, I've said a lot, is that sin makes us stupid. And it does so by blinding us to things that are otherwise obvious. In fact, as I was running the other day, I came up with this phrase, <laughs> I find one of my greatest devotional times is when I'm running it. And as I was running, this phrase came into my mind that my problem is that I'm often stupefied by my pathology. You know, I'm stupefied by my pathology. Sometimes I become incredibly stupid because I have developed these patterns of thinking and living and acting. And you can just find yourself saying and doing and even thinking things that you know. Really, any wise person would say, get out of here. The Lord be, get, rebuke you, Satan. But instead, you entertain those things in your mind. So there's just that simple issue of our sinful pathology. We're all sinful. We're all, we're all vulnerable to doing things that we know that aren't in God's will and not in our best interest or anyone else's. But what's even interesting is that over time, and this would be my second observation, that over time, sin can become so ingrained that it really becomes enculturated. I mean, it becomes socially and culturally accepted to do certain things. Um, Dan Allender put it this way. He said, when the unthinkable becomes debatable, it eventually becomes acceptable. So we look at the most recent court controversies facing this nation, and what do we find? Things that were once considered to be unthinkable suddenly became open for debate and discussion, and now they have become acceptable, and society shifts. But it doesn't happen just simply with things like same-sex attraction. It can happen with greed, for example. We can look at greed in such a way that suddenly greed becomes acceptable. Well, what do I mean by greed? I mean this intense and selfish desire for something more, especially when we're talking about wealth or power or food. We can become greedy for all sorts of stuff. It just, it's really summarized by the word more. I just want more than I actually need. Now, I don't know about you. Yes, I do. But I'll, I'll say it anyway, make it easier. I don't know about you, but I find that greed lives inside of me. When my wife cooks something that is especially tasty to me and attractive to eat, I find myself wanting to have more than I know I should have. I just want to consume lots of it, you know. 
It's kind of like saying, here, I made huckleberry pie, have a slice. Are you serious? <laughs> or how about save some, some for the others? Why? If they don't taste it, they won't know what they're missing. <laughs> you know, these are, these are simple things. That I, this is in me, though. It's just, and there is always this, as James said, this inner craving for more that characterizes the human condition. And I don't say that that's necessarily all bad. But what Jesus said was it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's more joy, there's more fulfillment in the generous heart than there is in the one who really just thinks about how can we expand what we have. My wife and I, I went running yesterday morning and ran by an estate sale and went home and made the mistake of telling my wife. And so we, we walked down to our, the neighborhood where it was on and went through the estate sale. And as I walked through this home, the thing that really struck me was <clears throat> that, first of all, these people probably still had every single thing they ever bought since they first moved into that house probably 50 years ago. I mean, it was amazing. It was like, it was like a history lesson walking through it. And many of it was, much of it was my history. <laughs> it was kind of a weird experience. But I also thought to myself, all of these things that once, many of them were once precious treasures, were not worth much anymore. And we just go someplace else. And I, was, I went home and I just started looking around at our own home and thinking about these things that we value so much, things, heirlooms and things passed down from the family and so forth, but there will come a day where they will become as insignificant to our existence as that house full of stuff was to theirs. And how much greater it is to be able to characterize your life not by the acquiring, but by the giving. It's the way that God said we're supposed to seek to define our lives. Not by the acquiring. We're not defined by what we acquire, but we're defined by what we give away. But even worse than the cultural acceptance of being greedy, because we live in a culture that does that. Don't, we don't have kings and queens. We have millionaires and billionaires. That's what we have. We have the Forbes 500 richest list, you know, or major. This is, this is where our, our aristocracy is, that he who has the most stuff and has acquired the most is the person who is the most valuable. And I'm sad to say it. It's, it's a lot of appearances. And you ladies know this better than us, guys. You know, guys, we, our difference, when we, we don't go shopping, we go hunting, you know, we know what the target is. We run into the store and we go right to it. We buy it and we walk out. We don't graze like women do, you know. I hate it when my wife says, I just want to run into the store to get something. And I know that no matter what the store is, we're going to stop at one end and we're going to graze every aisle because she's going to make sure that she sees what the going rate is for just about everything. <laughs> she has it all locked in her brain, you know. But you see... It, one thing that women learn very quickly, too, is if, if you're going to go shopping, how you dress really has a powerful influence on how you're treated by other people, because that's human nature, isn't it? James gave that warning. He says, a rich man comes laden with all his special jewelry, and he says, he comes into your fellowship, and you say, here, come and sit here in the front row. We really want to make you have a, you know, and I like that, because I don't want them to miss anything that I have to say. It's important, you know. But if someone comes who doesn't have that, we have a tendency to say, well, towards the back. 
Well, thankfully, you guys don't do that. I'm talking about that other church down the street. <laughs> but it's just very interesting to me. As last week when we had a, a couple of Muslim women sitting in the church service. And by the way, we're starting next service. If you saw it in the city, we're actually starting Arabic translation because we have a number of people from Arabic backgrounds who are really in interested to come to church and we want them to catch all of this. But the thing that's, that was really interesting is I was talking with one lady. She said, well, I walked in and I saw him and I got scared. I said, why? Well, because of all that terrorism and that stuff that happened down in Louisiana and different things. And, and the truth is, more people are cared, killed by domestic terrorists in this country than anybody, any kind of Muslim or Arabic terrorist. But nonetheless, that doesn't make as big headlines, and so we don't really hear that as much. But the whole point is that there's a tendency to, to devalue other people based upon their appearance. I remember we had a bunch of guys coming. We had real outreach in a, in a, uh, a, a, a recovery program in town, and they would come. They were allowed to go to church, and I met half a dozen of them one Sunday after service, and they told me, said, I said, why did you guys come all the way from the South Hill to go to church here? You have to take all these bus connections and all this sort of stuff. And they said, well... When we come here, we feel like we're welcome. We can walk in and sit down, and we don't feel like people are, are looking at us. And I think there's something that we, that, that we really need to kind of address in terms of our own hearts with regards to people who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who, who don't seem to come from the same kind of familiar context that we, we do. Because what we often don't understand is that at the root of that is a kind of an arrogance. Uh, uh, what I mean by arrogance is an exaggerated sense of one's own abilities or uh, one's own importance. That one of the comments that the, the moms and dads in this story made was, our children are as good as their children. Why should our kids have to go hungry and theirs not? Why is this somehow okay? And I think when you begin to realize that every person is, is of in, incredible value to God, regardless of how badly their life has turned out or how difficult it has become, but there's value there. A young lady came up to me after one of our Connect events and, you know, uh, a little challenged in, in various ways, a little socially awkward. And she came up and she, she hugged me and she's, I, she said, do you know why I'm here? I said, no, why? She says, because I found that when I came here, I was accepted. And I, had, I found friends. And I thought, you know, it really comes down to people just like you, and I commend you guys for this. Just putting your arms around those people and, and embracing people when they come and letting them feel like we see value in you, even when you don't see value in yourself that those are the kind of things that can literally transform people's lives. But if we allow ourselves to be kind of arrogant, the idea that somehow we're cut above or better than other people in one way or another, it emboldened us to, to disregard the things that God clearly commands us not to do to the point that we become oblivious to something that is obviously not right. We can become completely oblivious. 
So that when we try to understand historically racism in this culture through the centuries, and it still obviously exists, but that racism within our culture, we try to understand it, you have to understand that generations grew up never seeing anything wrong with that because they had been convinced that some people are genetically superior to other people and therefore it's okay to teach people, treat other people as inferior. Today we look at that and go, that's insane. How can people be so stupid? Let me tell you how you do stupid. You sit around the dinner table like I did as a kid and you hear it all the time. And your father says to me, some of my best friends are Negroes. And my question was, as a young kid, how come we've never met any of your best friends? How come they're never in our house? And the answer was, the blackbirds stay with the blackbirds and the blue jays stay with the blue jays. Well, as a 10-year-old, that didn't make sense to me. But nonetheless, that's how people be, develop prejudices. We simply put people in a category called those kinds of people. That's how you get there. You just allow yourself to say, Though you know the kind of person I'm talking about. I'll never forget riding my motorcycle, leathers, all the stuff on, you know, the whole uniform. And uh, I pull up <clears throat> next to a minivan, and I hear the mom say to the kids, don't look at him. And one of the little kids in the back goes, Mom, that's Pastor Ken. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I've got this posing thing down. <laughs> you know, something about a Harley. You look so big on a Harley, and then you step off, and it's like you've become a miniature. <laughs> it's like you're in Gulliver's Travel all of a sudden. You step off the moon. <laughs> So it's a weird thing. Anyway, I guess the, really the, the pertinent question is, how does someone like you and me, how do we avoid falling into the kind of deception that these men fell into? Because that's what they did. They became deceived. Somehow their prosperity and their wealth and their positions and their authority and their heredity and all those kind of things marshaled together to give them an idea that somehow they didn't have to really follow what God had very clearly said they should follow. Well, I think the answer to how do you maintain integrity, you know what the word integrity means? It literally means that there's a consistency between what you believe in your head and what you do with your body and your life that those things really match up, that God's will becomes something that you are always trying to bring yourself into harmony with. And a lot of times when we have a lack of peace in our life, there's disharmony. I always appreciate when the musicians are all playing in the same key. It's very helpful. 
because it's a beautiful harmoniousness as the sounds blend together. And we all know the experience of disharmony. I remember years ago we had a Christmas show and as they were getting into this big production number, man, with a big choir and all these musicians, all this stuff, something happened on the keyboard and it shifted keys. And it was one of the most painful experiences I ever sat through <laughs> in, in any context. It was really bad. It was worse than my garage band as a kid. I mean, it was, that's bad, you know. That disharmoniousness where there's a, a dissonance going on between me and God, that's where the lack of peace comes in. And it's that lack of peace that once we experience it, it brings us into a place of saying, God, how do I bring my life back into harmony? And the answer is, God, teach me your heart and help me to seek to imitate it. That's why when I looked at this, I thought, how did Nehemiah do this? Because we assume that he was a man who might not be tempted in the same way, but as he's sitting there for 12 years watching his bank account dropping as he's covering the expenses for all this stuff, you can't tell me there weren't moments where he sat back and said, wait a minute, I can't afford this. So why did, did he continue to do it? And I think the answer is supplied through his own words. The very first thing he says to us is, out of reverence, Literally, that means a fearful, respectful, even terror for God. I did not like to act like that. Out of reverence. Now, we have to understand, we, we talk about reverencing God. And a lot of modern translations are trying to get away from the word, the fear of God, because they think it drives non-Christians away. But, you know, it also says fear should be shown to those whom we should be afraid of. And one of the things I find is that that's one of the most comforting truths and also one of the most terrifying truths to me in the Bible. The very fact that he says things like in, in, in Luke 8, 17, nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the opening, that's a very comforting or a very terrifying fact. When Jesus says, there's nothing that you do that will not be exposed to the light of day, when there's nothing that you're trying to keep in darkness that won't be brought out, I mean, that's pretty frightening when you think about it, especially when your thoughts, your words, and your actions are being evaluated by an objective observer, that's one of the things that drives us to Jesus, isn't it? God, take that away from me. Remove that. Forgive me. Cleanse my life of that. I don't want to have that kind of accountability. But the fact that God sees everything, and there's nothing done in secret, there's nothing that can be disguised or hidden from Him. It's as silly as Adam and Eve trying to make a covering for their nakedness with fig leaves. You ever picked figs? You ever picked figs? I picked figs as a kid. Not a great idea to try to make clothing out of them. The leaves have these little fibers in them that, that actually get into your skin the same way that uh, insulation kind of can get into your skin and cause a terrible welting and itching. And then the, 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 as you pick the fig, there's a little white foam that comes out of the stem and you wear rubber gloves because if you don't, it'll stain your hands and turn them black. So I'm thinking, here they are with fig leaves trying to cover up their nakedness all the time, probably having this terrible rash with black stains all over their skin. Great hiding job there. <laughs> Great cover-up. It's that awareness that we serve a God from whom, before whom we are not simply naked in the physical sense, but we are transparently viewed. 
that should make us aware that we stand in the presence of a, of a perfect God. And if I'm outside of Christ, then I should be terrified by that fact because I will be exposed. Everything I've done will be brought up to the great white throne judgment. The reason I give my life to Christ is so that my sins might be forgiven and that moment not happen. But I should never think in myself that I can simply just behave any which way I want because there is this transparency and there is an accountability. Job put it well when he said, I, as I have observed those who plow evil and those who, and those who sow trouble reap it. Paul's New Testament version of much the same. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That I need to understand that my thoughts and my words and my actions will have consequences. And if I don't repent of those things, which is basically agreeing with God that that's wrong, those consequences will just become more and more critical to my life. Nehemiah simply understood this. Out of reverence for God, there was no way that he could do that and get away with it, that it wouldn't come back to haunt him. There's just no way. You know, those of you who contemplate sexual immorality, you don't have to actually sin in that way to understand that it's not a good choice. You just need to read 1 Samuel chapter 11 and see how it worked out for, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and see how it worked out for King David. It didn't work out at all. And that's the idea that the Word of God helps us to learn vicariously if we fear God enough to listen to what His Word says, if we have enough reverence in our hearts. Which really gives me the second thing, is that not only did he have a reverential fear of God, he had a reverential honoring or faithfulness to God's Word. When, when the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, he says, I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word hidden there actually can also be translated treasured. I valued your Word so much that I let it hide in my heart. Now, I know some of you engage in Bible memorization, and I, don't, I, don't, I think that's fine. But I found the most effective way of memorizing Scripture is to hide it in your heart, to treasure it as valuable. If I read it and I accept it as being absolute truth that's going to affect my life if I don't follow it, that has a sticking power in my life as opposed to just glossing over it or basically saying, well, that was then and this is now. The great critical issue I believe that the church is going to face in the next couple of decades is going to be whether or not we are going to take the Bible seriously in its intended sense or we're going to begin to give in to the increasingly opinionated view that the Bible is full of antiquated and archaic restrictions upon behavior that we no longer have to submit to, which is the argument that I'm actually having with some people right now. Christians. You have to reverence God's Word, and that means you hide it in your heart in such a way that it begins to influence your choices rather than your choices begin to influence how you understand the Word. And then thirdly, Nehemiah tells us of himself, he said in verse 16, instead I devoted myself to the work on this wall. There's a singularity of his focus regarding what he was doing. In fact, 
I, I like the way the uh, I like the way that Eugene Peterson translated Luke eleven thirty four when he said, "If you live wide eyed in wonder and belief, your body fills up with life. But if you live a squinty eyed in greed and distrust, your bo- body is a dank cellar." It's, it's graphic, it's exaggerated, it's a little hyperbole, but it gets the point. That essentially what Nehemiah said, my eyes stayed clear. And literally that passage, when, you're, when your eye is good or bad, or however the text reads it in, the, in the other translations, it literally means when your eye is clear, as opposed to being darkened. The idea of those of you who have had cataracts, have cataracts, or had cataract surgery, you understand this even better than any of us. You understand when that view becomes begin clouded and occluded, and you can't see clearly, and then suddenly those layers are taken away, and you can see with a crystal clarity which once was obscured to you. Nehemiah said, I didn't, I didn't lose clear sight of what the objective is. And as we've talked over the past week, that's what Satan wants in your life. He wants to create so many distractions and interferences and interruptions, so many troubles and so many problems in your life that you lose sight of what Paul referred to as the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. You see, problems in our life tend to make us focus on how we can improve the status and stature of our life in this world, and we lose sight of the fact that we're only temporarily here, we're passing through rather quickly, and that we have a home in eternity that is our real destiny and destination. Nehemiah says, I didn't lose sight of what the big objective was, the big picture is. When it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength, so forth. When he says, I have this against you because you've lost your first love. It's talking about the prioritization of my time, my energy, my resources. How am I prioritizing what is most important to me? And the scripture says, it's this relationship with God and living in a humble and loving response to God the Father in my life. That I live every day seeking to respond to him in a way that furthers the goal of the high calling that he's called me to, he's called you to. Let me simply say, in closing, that God has a word with those of us who have resources. Now, everybody has resources. We all have time, we all have money, and we all have energy. We all have these resources available to us, differing amounts granted, but we all have them. And he, and he makes this interesting command to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17. He says, it's a double command, interesting. He begins by saying, command those who are rich in this world, this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then he adds, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. You need to be generous with your time. You need to be generous with your resources. You need to be generous with your energy. What do I mean by being generous with the energy? It means we do things with all of our heart. We don't just simply walk through the motions, which may require you to learn how to say no to some things that aren't quite so important that you might focus more on the things that are, but that's a whole other message. But the whole point is that God says, be generous with your life. That's how you overcome being greedy. It's being generous. That's why he said, tell the man who steals to stop stealing and instead go out and get a job, make money so he can give 
to other people, as if giving to others would be the thing that would bring healing into our life. But he also promises a reward. Because he goes on, that same pastor saying, this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. In other words, storing treasures in heaven. But even Paul writing to the Corinthians on their giving, he said in 2 Corinthians 9, 11, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Because as Solomon said, a generous man will prosper. And he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. You see, in in the day-to-day choice of life, you have an option presented to you every day as how you're going to engage the world that you're walking through. You can do it with a generous heart or you can do it with a greedy heart. The greedy heart, we know that well. It says that this is my day. It exists to make me happy and provide me with everything I want. I've already made out the schedule and everything better better clip along right along as I planned it because if it doesn't, there's going to be H-E double hockey sticks to pay because I want what I want when I want it and I want more of it. I've never had a day like that. I've intended for a day like that, but it's never come to pass. I find that my days are constantly interrupted and faced with things that I hadn't quite planned on. But when you live generously, it means you live open-handedly with your time, your money, your energy, whatever resources you have available to you. Those things you live with an open hand and you simply say, God, if you want to require these things of me to do something other than what I planned, then your will be done, not my will be done. It's not as heady as having a plan and working it, but it is pretty fulfilling when you see what God takes and does with a surrendered life as opposed to one that's held tightly. That's why when we talk to the non-Christian and we share about our faith It has power, our testimony, when we're living a surrendered life because they see the evidence in how you live your life. It loses its power when you're striving to live a secure life where I've got everything tied down, screwed down, held tightly. But they see it and they understand it because the thing is, Without Christ, they live their life in this hopeless pursuit of somehow getting their act together so that at least before they die, they have everything organized. Instead, what we're saying is, you know, when I gave my life to Christ, He took over and He's in control. And I can live with peace now because there's not a distance between me and God. There's a harmoniousness between me and God. That when God speaks, it's music to my ears, not a threat to my agenda. The rich here, they saw God's will as a threat to their agenda because their agenda was to become rich and powerful. But when they repented of that, they began to experience joy and began to see the integrity and the grace that Nehemiah displayed. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to not just hear these things, but to begin to really bring them into our lives in a way that can express itself powerfully, wonderfully.
gloriously, that you might show us how to live lives of, of holy freedom, Lord, that we be free from the things that bind us up and hold us up, Lord, that even our own fearfulness that makes us want to create a safety zone around us that for fear that something harmful will touch us when in fact, God, you said that unless you guard the city, those who guard it do so in vain. You said that safety comes from you. You said that all things are really the consequence of your abiding presence in our life. God, help us to trust in that, to allow you to have your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.